NSA terrorist surveillance program and related uh, war on terror topics. Uh, we've got a great panel today, and I don't want to take too much time on preliminary matters, but uh, I do want to um, just give a brief background of the Federalist Society for anyone who's not familiar with the organization. Um, some of you I see are familiar in the crowd, but if you have not been to a Federalist Society event before, um, the organization is uh, committed to creating awareness and discussion of legal issues, primarily from a constitutional and policy perspective. The organization is founded on three fundamental principles. Uh, the state exists to preserve freedom. The separation of government, governmental powers is central to our constitution and that it is emphatically the province and duty of the courts to say what the law is, not what it should be. Now, the society seeks to promote awareness and application of those principles through events like this, where people can come together and have a free and open exchange of ideas uh, on topics such as the one we're here for today. So uh, I would invite you, if you would like more detailed information, to visit the table in the front uh, of the foyer here, uh, there are uh, information pamphlets on how to become a member of the organization, or if you don't want to join the organization but you'd like to know about our events, we have these nifty blue cards that you can fill out and just leave there uh, and provide me with your address and your email address, and I will send it to the folks that maintain our database, and you will receive notification of the future events. I don't have any to announce now, but we do have several in the works. So um, we also advertise in the Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. Uh, so keep your eyes posted, and we'll have another one probably uh, towards uh, the end of December, um, just before the holidays, or perhaps in the spring. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our moderator today, who is Professor Gerard Clark from Suffolk University Law School. Uh, he is a constitutional law professor and uh, one, uh, someone that is very interested in these topics, uh, as we all are. So uh, please welcome Professor Clark. Thank you, Greg. Well, I opened up the uh, New York Times this morning and the lead story was about the subject of this panel. Democrats seem ready to extend the wiretap powers, which were temporarily given to the president a couple of months ago. Uh, so we're right in the midst of the news of the day. Um, I'm just going to introduce our speakers. Our first will be Bob Barr. Uh, who was in the uh, United States House of Representatives from 1995 to 2003, representing uh, a district in the state of uh, Georgia. Uh, he was appointed a United States attorney back in 1986, um, and he served as president of the Southeastern Legal Foundation. Um, he was with the CIA from... 1971 to 1978, and he has been a practitioner um, of law. Uh, he's an authority on privacy issues. Uh, he currently occupies the 21st Century Liberties Chair for Freedom and Privacy at the American Conservative Union, um, and he's also a board member for the National Rifle Association. Bob? Thank you, Professor. It is, uh, it's always a pleasure to be uh, in Boston. It's always a pleasure to be with the Federalist Society. And for those of you that uh, may not yet be members of the Federalist Society, I'd, I 
certainly echo uh, the uh, missive that uh, you all consider joining. It is a very important organization, uh, not just because you can develop some great friendships and professional networking, but you really do have the opportunity to engage in uh, some wonderful and regular substantive discussions that uh, occur far too infrequently uh, among uh, so many of the other uh, organizations, associations, and friendships that, uh, that we have in our professional and personal lives. So I really do uh, urge, uh, urge everybody to uh, consider joining and to join if they are not a member. And it's, uh, it's always an honor to be invited to participate, as I have uh, had the honor on a number of occasions in recent years uh, with uh, the Federalist uh, Society. Uh, it's a, uh, a special pleasure to once again be with uh, uh, my good friend, and I don't say that in a congressional sense. He always say, my dear friend, you know, to your worst enemy on the other side. Uh, he really is a very, very good friend of, of many years, uh, John Yu. Uh, and uh, uh, aside from our, our friendship, uh, we have enjoyed, uh, part, at least I have enjoyed participating over the last couple of years in a number of programs, debates, loosely defined, uh, with, uh, with John on, on topics such as that, which is going to occupy a little bit of our, our time this evening. Uh, and John is like uh, a couple of other folks that I've had the opportunity to work with and get to know over the years, uh, people like Ed Meese. And no matter how many times, my, uh, uh, my view of Ed Meese is no matter how many times I sit down with Ed, whether it's on a program or just a personal meeting with him, I always learn something. Uh, thus it is with, uh, with John. Uh, the depth of his uh, knowledge and experience and his ability to always bring something new, uh, some new insight, uh, even though it sometimes is wrong, but to bring some new insight uh, to an issue uh, always leaves me after our programs and after our get-togethers learning more than I went in, uh, and I really do appreciate that on, on John's part. Uh, Professor Clark mentioned as one of the uh, primary missions or goals or subject matters of the, uh, that occupies the Federalist Society's time, its mission, so to speak, is uh, consideration of and support for the doctrine of separation of powers. Uh, and I hadn't really thought about that so much in terms of the Federalist Society uh, specifically, but it is a very, very important uh, principle or philosophy uh, and one of the bedrock principles on which our uh, nation was founded. Uh, and you see that notion of separation of powers and balance of powers, as it's sometimes referred to, uh, woven throughout the structure of our government and the, uh, the enumeration of uh, certain rights uh, in the Bill of Rights and limitations on the government power. You see that notion uh, reflecting the Founding Fathers' uh, very, very profound knowledge of both human history, organized government, uh, and uh, individual uh, the, uh, the notion that you really do need checks and balances and separation of powers in order for the whole system to operate with respect for the different rights, the different powers that are always necessarily to some extent competing with each other. Uh, and it is particularly, uh, if not vitally important right now, that the, that the Federalist Society and, and all of us in our individual work and, and the, the, the discourse that we have in our lives focus on that and get our fellow citizens to focus on it because uh, it, is, it truly is in danger of becoming a victim of the post-9-11 world in which uh, many folks view the role of 
one of those uh, branches of government, uh, that is the executive, the presidency, the administration, the commander-in-chief, as uh, the president constantly, li constantly likes, us, likes to remind us as if that is the only purpose uh, in having a president. It isn't. It is not, I don't, I don't believe, even necessarily the most important responsibility of the president. Uh, but... Uh, what we have seen in the post-9-11 world is a tremendous acceleration, not an initiation. We've seen problems develop over the, uh, over the last few decades, but a tremendous acceleration in the direction of unifying, uh, to use a term of those who view uh, the role of the president, uh, the presidency as a unitary, uh, unified or unitary president, a unification of power or a concentration of power in the executive branch that truly does endanger the notion of separation of powers. Uh, and uh, to a large extent, I believe, this is the result. Uh, it's not the result of any nefarious uh, uh, you know, goal or, or uh, drive on the part of the administration. It's the result largely of the other two branches, that is, the Congress and uh, the court system, uh, largely abrogating their responsibility to ensure that there, that there is separation of powers, which necessarily implies that there are powers in those separated branches. Uh, you can't have separation of powers if all the powers concentrated in one branch of government. Yet we've seen two phenomena, I think, in recent decades uh, that have given rise to uh, this notion that the president is not only supreme but unitary, uh, apart and above all both of the other branches of, of government. Uh, the other phenomena is a tremendous, uh, despite the best efforts of the Federalist Society, uh, a tremendous uh, decrease in the public's awareness of and knowledge of and interest in these very issues. What are the foundational principles of, of our government? What are the powers of the different branches? What is the notion of privacy that is woven into and fundamental to uh, our very system of civilized uh, government uh, in our society? Uh, so where you have a citizenry that, despite the missives of our founding fathers that correctly view the proper operation of our government, our society as they envisioned it, as being dependent on an informed and educated and involved citizenry, uh, we see largely nowadays, uh, and this uh, has roots, of course, in our, in, uh, uh, our educational system, uh, the decrease of civic responsibility and civic awareness and so forth, but we've seen a tremendous decrease in public awareness and knowledge of an interest in these issues. And, of course, uh, that uh, inevitably gives rise, as I think our founding fathers correctly recognized, to government stepping into that void uh, and increasing its power if the citizenry does not recognize what it is that's, that's happening. Uh, that phenomena, which has been advancing in recent years, uh, coupled with the uh, uh, abrogation of responsibility uh, to oversee each other uh, on the part of the, uh, the legislative branch and the judicial branch, coupled with uh, a succession of presidencies, most notably the current president uh, and vice president, uh, who seem very, very intent, very consciously intent on increasing to the greatest extent that they can the power of the presidency, uh, we're witnessing uh, you know, a tipping point where we have 
pretty much left the notion behind of separation of powers and are dangerously close to moving in the direction of uh, a president that can, as some have advocated, ignore court decisions based on their own unreviewable interpretation or conclusion uh, that a piece of legislation or a court decision uh, infringes their view of their powers. Uh, we have seen, uh, witnessed with the, the current president, the notion that that one clause in the Constitution in Article 2, that the president shall serve as the commander-in-chief, uh, becoming the operative phrase, the seminal power for the presidency, uh, and therefore, uh, if the president, as this president has, defined the theater of operations in the global war on terror, for example, as the entire planet, because you'd never know when there might be an attack carried out or planned, uh, and in duration infinite with no end point, some say, well, the end point is when, uh, uh, when, when Al-Qaeda is uh, completely destroyed or whatnot. Uh, I dare say that uh, even if we did reach the point where one particular entity uh, of the terrorist uh, network out there that is much broader than just Al-Qaeda uh, were destroyed, uh, that would not mean that the government, uh, as it's currently configured and as it currently views itself, uh, would simply step back and say, well, uh, that's all. Now we'll revert back to a system where a president is bound by the laws, uh, is bound by court decisions, and cannot on his or her own decide that simply because I, as the commander-in-chief, uh, view this matter as paramount involving national security, and I can therefore do what I want, such as in the case of the uh, FISA uh, surveillance program, uh, misnomer, the terrorist surveillance program, because it surveilled a lot more than just terrorists. It surveils a lot of it surveilled and does continue to surveil, uh, by all accounts, uh, a large number of American citizens who have no connection with uh, or involvement with or interest in supporting terrorism. The, for example, the legislation that Professor Clark referred to as being in the news today, uh, which uh, uh, relates to the so-called uh, Protect America Act, which was signed by President Bush on, on August 5th and amends the 30-year-old Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act by removing from its ambit an entire category of electronic communications, that is, any electronic communication uh, for which the government reasonably believes one party is, is not in the United States, uh, which means any international electronic communication that is basically a phone call or an email or an Internet transmission that anybody in this country makes, whether they're a U.S. citizen or not, uh, whether they are an appropriate target uh, for foreign intelligence or law enforcement surveillance, ultimately, for example, so long as they are communicating with somebody that the government reasonably believes is not in the United States, that is, overseas, then that communication, that electronic communication, is not bound by FISA's strictures that uh, require generally, not in every instance, but generally, uh, that a warrant needs to be secured. Uh, the Protect America Act, which thus vastly expands the universe of communications by U.S. citizens that are reachable without court order by uh, the, uh, the, the executive branch, uh, was passed on August, uh, right before August 5th, signed by the President uh, on August 5th. Uh, and 
is coming up for either reauthorization, because uh, it had a six-month uh, sunset in it, or amendment. Uh, and that debate, uh, unfortunately, seems still to be moving in the direction uh, that the administration wants it to move in, which is not as they publicly uh, indicated, uh, simply to technically and appropriately uh, make some amendments to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to bring it into accord as a 30-year-old law into accord with uh, more modern technology, which is entirely appropriate. Uh, but in so doing, Congress, here again, because it apparently either didn't understand the issues involved or were cowed into backing away simply because the administration said, now, uh, now you guys up on the Hill, if, uh, if you don't pass this expanded power and there's another terrorist attack, you're going to, we're making sure that you're going to get blamed for it. Uh, so they passed uh, this, uh, this law, uh, which goes far beyond, as I say, the nece some necessary corrections and, and adjustments to the FISA Act of 1978. This is the sort of thing that is happening, as we saw it also, for example, a couple of years ago with some reauthorized provisions of the USA Patriot Act without thorough consideration by the Congress. Uh, and these sorts of things are happening uh, largely because... Congress has abrogated or does not understand its responsibility to ensure that not only the laws that it passed, uh, has passed are being properly uh, executed and carried out, but the constitutional provisions as well, uh, or that they simply uh, don't care uh, or have other concerns. Uh, this is a very dangerous situation because it is demonstrably eating away at the foundational principles of our republic, including separation of powers and the role of the courts. Uh, and that's why, uh, uh, Professor, uh, I think it's very important that we focus on these issues, not just in this forum this evening and in other programs involving the Federalist Society, uh, but in uh, other professional and social organizations uh, that, we, uh, that we are in, so that at least at the end of the day, whenever that day may come, maybe five years from now, maybe a year from now, who knows, when we wake up, if we do wake up, uh, and see that our civil liberties have been completely taken away, particularly our right to privacy, it will not have been because we were asleep at the switch, uh, that we actually did engage in a debate and made a conscious decision that we no longer wish to have separated powers. We wish to have... Uh, powers that, uh, as they relate to a self-determined by the executive branch view of national security and being the commander-in-chief, that that branch can do anything without the checks and balances that have, in fact, stood us so well for so long, uh, and that that will not have happened simply because we didn't do something to further the debate and at least get people to focus on these fundamental issues. So, Again, I appreciate very much the Federalist Society bringing us together to talk about these issues and for your kind introduction, Professor, and for uh, once again having the opportunity to uh, listen to uh, one of America's preeminent constitutional scholars uh, to uh, discuss and debate these issues, uh, Professor John Yu, and look forward to uh, hearing from him and then I guess having a few final remarks and then open it up for a uh, discussion this evening, Professor. Thank you, and thank you all for having us. Thank you, Bob. Our next speaker is John Yu, who is a professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley, where he has taught since 1993. Professor Yu served in all three branches of the national government, 
He was a deputy assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department, where he worked on issues of national security and terrorism matters arising from the September 11 attacks. He served as, uh, as general counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee under Orrin Hatch. Upon graduating from law school, Professor Yu served as a law clerk for Judge Lawrence Silberman of the D.C. Circuit and Judge Clarence Thomas of the United States Supreme Court. Well, thank you uh, for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure to speak of the Federal Society. Um, it's a great chance to uh, leave uh, the People's Republic of Berkeley and come to more conservative places like Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, you, I don't know if you follow what's happening in Berkeley these days. Uh, the, uh, you know, we're quite confused. We have the number two college football team in the country now, thanks to everybody else losing last weekend. And so this has uh, encouraged members of the city of Berkeley to occupy the land around the football stadium to prevent it from growing any bigger and making our team number one in the country. Uh, we have, I, I'm not making this up, uh, the football, uh, I think our football team is, success is only due to the coach who has a reputation for taking poor draft picks or whatever and turning them into good players. And he only agreed to keep remaining our football coach if the uh, university built a $100 million expansion of the football stadium. Um, the university, being a state school, has a lot of trouble raising money, but you can imagine we raised $100 million for the football stadium in about 29 days, I believe was the figure. Um, but it requires cutting down oak trees around the football stadium, and so the city of Berkeley, some of the people, citizens of the city of Berkeley, did not approve of this, and so they occupy and have been living in the trees since March. Um, and so we call them the tree people. The only reason I care so much about this is my office is right next to the tree people, so I look out and sort of watch their daily activities every day when I'm trying to figure out what to do uh, in my writing. And uh, it gives you, I guess it gives you a sense of what it's like to live in Berkeley. I can't imagine, you know, Boston College, I think, is ranked, what, seventh or eighth now in the country? Fourth. Oh, wow. I can't imagine uh, people in the city of Berkeley occupying the space around the Boston College football team to prevent you from getting to number one. Uh, if anything, they'd probably help you cut the trees down, wouldn't they, to help the football stadium grow. Anyway, just a little piece of what it's like to live in Berkeley these days. Um, it's also a great pleasure to be uh, debating Bob Barr, who uh, we've debated many times on this subject, and uh, we've, uh, I think, really enjoyed it. And each, uh, I'd show you my notes, but they keep changing. Every time Bob and I debate this subject, I end up having to reorganize what I was going to say because he always has some new arguments and new facts and figures to throw against me on this subject, and he has done so again. So I apologize in advance if I seem disorganized or disrupted, but that's just, uh, that's just arguing with Bob. Was <laughs> one of the great, I, I really admire him. I want to be clear, I very admire, much admire him, especially during his conduct during the whole uh, Clinton impeachment, where I thought he was one of the sort of most honest and open congressmen in the House of Representatives, and that's probably why he's not a congressman anymore. <laughs> so let me... Um, uh, just make two basic points about the NSA surveillance program. One about, I think which Bob didn't talk too much about, which is his Fourth Amendment implications, and then the separation of powers argument. First, let me describe what it is. If uh, you remember, this program uh, was disclosed by the New York Times, uh, I think in December of 2005. It's a program where, without a warrant, the intelligence agencies intercept 
phone calls and emails uh, going into or out of the country where one of the people on the call is thought to be, reasonably thought to be a member of al-Qaeda. Um, this seems to be inconsistent with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which generally requires a warrant from a federal judge from a special federal court called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court whenever uh, foreign intelligence electronic surveillance is conducted against a, a United States citizen or person, a resident alien or is conducted within the United States itself. So you have, as I said, two issues, the Fourth Amendment issue and then the basic separation of powers issue, whether this is a violation of the president's duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed by not obeying the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. First thing I'd say about the Fourth Amendment, which is, it seems odd to me really in the debates about the, this terrorist surveillance program in FISA, you don't hear a lot about the Fourth Amendment issue. Um, I think that's because uh, generally the warrant requirement has been chipped away at by the Supreme Court to the point where the current doctrine sits, sits at the point where if the search is not for the purpose of law enforcement, then... Uh, the court has said the warrant requirement is not required in every circumstance, that instead you look to whether the Constitution, you look to the constitutional root of the Fourth Amendment, which is, is it a reasonable search and seizure. And so the court has upheld things like uh, sorry, random, uh, random driver checkpoints to stop drunk driving. It's upheld things like your analysis tests of government servants, public servants, and it's upheld uh, random drug testing of high school athletes. And in all those cases, the court had said the point of the searches is not to um, get at law enforcement. It's not to uh, provide evidence for prosecutions. It's to do something else, to protect the public safety or to maintain the integrity of government officials and so on. And so in this case, I think um, if we got past the separation of powers arguments and made it turn to the Fourth Amendment issue, it would become one of uh, what's the purpose of the government's electronic surveillance. And in this case, I think the purpose is to protect the national security. Uh, in wartime. And historically, we haven't uh, required warrants when the government conducts searches or electronic surveillance <laughs> of the enemy during wartime. Uh, the, uh, just to uh, describe how this falls in within, within what we usually think of the executive power, um, the president has been authorized to use force uh, against anyone connected to the 9-11 attacks. And so you would think part of his power to gather intelligence necessary to use that force appropriately. Um, the whole purpose of it is not to catch people for criminal prosecution. It's to stop future attacks on the country by the al-Qaeda terrorist network. So it seems to me then the real test would be, is this a reasonable way of doing that? Is this a reasonable search? And some of that, uh, you know, to make that judgment, we'd need to know more, I think, about searches are being conducted and how it's done precisely. I, my understanding from the newspapers is that that's all been presented to the FISA court and that somehow the FISA court has issued an order now approving the searches. Um, but it's not exactly clear what type of program it's approved. But you'd want to know, for example, how many <laughs> communications are intercepted, where they're intercepted, how many of those uh, searches lead to productive leads that, for our intelligence agencies to follow. But let me uh, talk more directly now about the separation of powers uh, issue. First thing I just want to point out is that um, I don't think it's the case that the president uh, has to carry out every statute passed by Congress. Um, I think the framers, when they wrote the Constitution, rejected uh, the notion, this kind of notion of parliamentary or legislative supremacy. 
In the period between 1776 and 1787, when our Constitution was written, every state constitution was redone in the wake of independence. And almost all, I think actually all but two of them, did create a system of legislative supremacy where the executive branch's powers were either removed or split up or the executive branch itself was divided, all with an aim to making sure that the executive did carry, saw its job as executing the laws uh, passed by Congress and nothing else. So, for example, um, the most extreme example is was the Pennsylvania State Constitution, which was uh, passed in 1776, which created an executive branch of 12 uh, members who held office for one year without being subject to re-election, all 12 members being appointed by the legislature. And many other state constitutions have sort of similar structures, all designed to reduce the independence of the executive branch and deny the executive branch many of the sort of traditional powers that it had under the Anglo-American constitutional system. And I think if you read the framing and you read the Federalist Papers, I think you see an open rejection of that idea by the people who wrote the Constitution and uh, fought for its ratification. Uh, they wanted to create an executive branch that was coordinate and equal to the other two branches and that was independent. Um, it's given independent powers by the Constitution and it is given the duty to faithfully execute the laws, but part of those laws are, include the Constitution itself. <laughs> And just as in Marbury versus Madison, the Supreme Court said it is not required to enforce laws which are inconsistent with the Constitution, that the higher law in our country is the Constitution. I think that also applies to the president, that the president's first duty is to enforce the Constitution, and he cannot and should not enforce laws passed by Congress in the right process, but passed by Congress, but which are inconsistent with that Constitution. The corollary to this is that also that the executive branch has um, independent powers that were given to it because of uh, its difference, uh, the, the different nature of itself as a branch of government. So if you look at, for example, Federalist Number 70, which is sort of the primary Federalist paper written about the presidency, the executive branch was created specifically so it could act with speed, secrecy, uh, unity, in emergencies, um, in war, in certain situations where the legislature could anticipate future unforeseen circumstances. So let me give you some historical examples of this uh, different idea of the executive at work. So, for example, uh, President Washington, uh, our very first president, uh, issued the Neutrality Proclamation during the start of the wars between Britain and France in Europe. There was no uh, constitutional power explicitly given to President Washington that says he could declare whether the United States was neutral or not in wartime, didn't say, in fact, that the president could decide what our foreign policy was going to be as a nation towards another country or not. But President Washington and his advisors, I might add, both Hamilton and Jefferson, for once, agreed on this, that it was the executive branch's duty. It's part of the executive branch's constitutional authority to set foreign policy, to conduct negotiations and communications with other countries, to interpret treaties, and to decide things like whether the U.S. would be neutral in the war against France and Britain. George Washington, I also might add, was the first president to invoke executive privilege. He refused to provide the negotiating record of the Jay Treaty to the House of Representatives and said he only had an obligation to provide it to the Senate, but he wasn't going to provide it to the House where he thought it would be made public and couldn't be kept secret. Thomas Jefferson, uh, when he had to face the question of the Louisiana Purchase, 
which he thought was unconstitutional. Jefferson and many of his advisors believed that the United States Constitution did not give the nation the authority to acquire new territory. And if new territory like Louisiana was going to be added, you'd have to get a constitutional amendment. Thomas Jefferson actually thought as president he had the right to act outside the Constitution in the face of a great opportunity, like the opportunity to purchase Louisiana. And he thought that the check on him, or check on any executive who reached for some kind of extra constitutional power would be the polls. So he thought that he would have to turn to public approval after he did something like Louisiana in order uh, to fix his extra constitutional actions. Uh, Congressman Barr also mentioned that uh, there are arguments that presidents have the authority to refuse to obey court orders. I don't think that the Bush administration has made that claim, but President Jefferson, for example, refused to obey a court. He became the first president to disobey a court subpoena. He refused to obey a subpoena to testify and provide documents to the Aram, in the Aramburg treason trial. I think the, the president, probably the greatest president in our history, and the president who sort of invoked executive power to its greatest breath would be Abraham Lincoln. Uh, president Lincoln took a number of steps at the beginning of the Civil War, like remove money from the treasury, raise an army, blockade the South, uh, invade the South, even decide that force is a, it was a constitutional authority of the president to stop secession. He took all of those decisions, without, certainly without consulting the Supreme Court, but without consulting the Congress either. Several of those powers rest within the powers of Congress. President Lincoln also refused to obey a writ of habeas corpus to release a southern a Maryland rebel who was detained by the military at the beginning of the Civil War. He also, if you remember, had a very, uh, I don't say negative, but he had a very uh, restrained view of the breadth of, of judicial precedent. If you may remember, he argued that the president had no obligation to apply the Dred Scott decision outside the facts of the Dred Scott case itself. That Supreme Court decisions had no precedential value on the other branches of government. Last example I'll give you is President Roosevelt, also commonly thought of one of the, as one of the greatest presidents in our history. President Roosevelt, in the uh, years leading up to World War II, I think many people think acted inconsistently with the Neutrality Acts in order to help Britain and France to the point where he ordered the Navy to escort uh, British convoys across the Atlantic and even to drop depth charges on German submarines. He also ordered over a year and a half before the beginning of World War II the electronic <coughs> surveillance of every communication in the country, regardless of whether it was international or not, so that the FBI could try to find Nazi saboteurs. This is a much broader program than the one the Bush administration has allegedly engaged in. There was a Supreme Court decision and a federal statute on the books at the time which prohibited electronic surveillance of any kind without a judicial warrant. <coughs> and President Roosevelt can decide to go ahead with the program even though he was told that the leaders of the House and Senate would refuse to pass any bill authorizing the surveillance. So let me close by saying, well, what do we do? I think uh, what uh, Congressman Barr raises is the possibility of, well, what if we really have an out-of-control executive? What if this is not a time like Lincoln or Roosevelt? What if this is president is more like Richard Nixon? Well, it seems to me that the usual constitutional system is more than adequate uh, to, pro to impose checks and balances on any rogue executive. Congress has the power of funding. It can always cut off the NSA surveillance program or any other aspect 
of the war on terrorism or the war in Iraq that it disapproves of. If you think about it, the, fun, the power of funds is a negative power. Congress doesn't have to do anything to effectively wield the power of the purse. It, requ- it has to act affirmatively to give the executive branch any funding for anything. The political process is what eventually brought down Richard Nixon through impeachment. It wasn't any type of post-Wargate reform laws that effectively stopped Richard Nixon. In fact, if you think about it, a lot of those post-Watergate reform laws have been failures. The crown jewel of the post-Watergate reform laws was the Independent Counsel Act, uh, which I think both Republicans and Democrats now believe was a failure. Um, It's really uh, ultimately the powers that are constitutionally given to Congress and the courts or the political process itself through elections. You know, President Bush and the Republican Party lost the 2006 midterm elections, and that has increased the checks on the executive branch. And those are the kinds of checks and balances, I think, that work if Congress really wants to use them. And that's all I'll close with is we don't have right now, I think, well, let me me rephrase that. If there is an abuse of power or if people are concerned about the extent of what the government is doing to try to stop terrorism, Congress certainly has the ability to stop it. And I think the fact that Congress is not not the sign of a constitutional defect, it's just a failure of political will on the part of Congress. Congress doesn't want to cut off any of these programs because they don't want to be held responsible or partially responsible should any of those cutbacks lead to some kind of terrorist attack in the future. It's much more convenient for Congress to uh, let the executive branch go first, make the decision, get criticized if it doesn't work out, um, and to not be responsible that, uh, for those kinds of tough decisions on, the, on these kinds of aspects of the war on terrorism. So I would say that the constitutional system is actually working quite well, that the powers of uh, the both branches are fully available, and what you see is something that we see in the administrative state or the workings of the government every day where the executive branch has to take the initiative, and Congress uh, wants to avoid political responsibility, so they're more than happy to criticize it, but they're not willing to pass a statute or do anything to cut it off either. Thank you very much. I, I certainly could not agree more uh, with, uh, with John's last point. Uh, uh, much, uh, many of the problems and much of the uh, shift in power uh, to the executive branch, which, of course, ultimately comes from us, uh, is uh, directly the result of a somnambulant Congress, a uh, Congress that really doesn't, uh, that prefers, as John correctly characterized, to just sort of punt the ball, uh, let the executive branch uh, do something, and then you know, criticize it later on. Uh, they simply have, in many respects, uh, for many years, uh, long before this administration uh, took office, abrogated uh, fundamental responsibilities of that branch. That is absolutely correct. But that still is no reason to allow any president, whether one likes this president, whether one likes an earlier president that violated the law, that should never be, particularly as Federalists, uh, an excuse or justification to allow uh, another president to violate the law. And this notion that Presidents in our system of government don't have to uh, carry out the laws passed by Congress is absolutely preposterous. Uh, if that were actually the case, if, uh, if, if our system of government, as laid out uh, in our Constitution, uh, contemplated that 
Congress's laws, legislation passed by the Congress, are merely advisory, uh, then why would you even need a veto? Well, the veto is there because that is the mechanism that a president utilizes and was intended to utilize to deal with legislation that the president deems unconstitutional. Now, he may veto a bill for other reasons as well, certainly. It spends too much money or whatnot. But if John's proposition were actually the case that presidents don't have to carry out laws passed by the Congress, you wouldn't need the veto. That, in fact, is one of two mechanisms if we are to be a nation that abides by the rule of law that a president, any president, has available to him or her uh, to address laws that are unconstitutional, that unconstitutionally infringe, for example, on the president's or the executive's power. The other, of course, is to challenge it in the courts. Under the system that John has outlined, uh, we're really in, in the Orwellian world of all branches are equal, but one is more equal than the other. Uh, clearly, if you have a situation where you say, well, the Congress is equal and the judiciary is equal and the presidency is equal, but they don't have to do what these other two branches tell them, well, clearly that one is more equal than the others. And that is the great danger. Uh, here again, particularly as Federalists who believe in limited power, who believe in the rule of law, who believe in separation of powers and checks and balances as an appropriate mechanism to address those two fundamental concerns, uh, we ought to be not only very, very wary, but adamantly opposed to any system of government that contemplates or advocates a president not having to abide by the laws not only the Congress has passed, remember, a president has to sign that law. So it isn't as if a law is presented to the president as a law, and then the president decides, well, I can't abide by this because it's an improper infringement on my authority. The president signed it in the first place. What kind of president do we want? Do we really want presidents that sign laws that they know or believe are unconstitutional? Well, come to think of what we have one now. President Bush both when he ran for office and as president, said the campaign finance law, as contemplated when he ran for president and then as was contemplated and being considered to be passed by the Congress during his first term as president, is unconstitutional. Yet he signed it anyway. Uh, and we now are having continued very serious problems, I think, with that. It's a non sequitur. It doesn't make any sense, the proposition that our system of government, the mechanisms of government that contemplated separate but equal branches among the three, really meant, our founding fathers really meant that a president doesn't have to abide by the laws that he has signed. It's, an un, it's, it's unreasonable. It's an unreasonable interpretation of history. It's an unreasonable reading of the Constitution. And it's an unreasonable understanding of the philosophy that we know our founding fathers had in mind. And with that, I guess we're going to open it up for uh, Q&A and Q &A. further discussion. Yes, indeed. Questions from the audience? Yes, sir. Uh, I guess the, 
part you're just disagreeing about is the signing statement that he signs the bill with a caveat. Uh, I see this as a, a footnote. A footnote, or whatever you want to say. Um, when I first heard about it, I, I thought there's something open about that. At least, you know, maybe prior administrations didn't have signing statements, but at least putting on the table where their disagreement is and, and kind of marking up the territory of where the debate is. Is Congress or, or somebody with standing going to bring this before the courts or not? And, well, well it, I suppose it is. It's, uh, it's, it's an honest and open power grab, uh, I suppose, and maybe something can be said for that as opposed to a secret memo or, or, or whatnot, uh, or simply doing what you want and saying something different publicly. Maybe, uh, maybe the signing statement has something to commend itself to us. Uh, here again, I think the fault really lies not so much with the president. I mean, I think the signing statements, many of them, as this president has utilized the power, which does, in fact, go, go back to, I believe, and John can correct me if I'm wrong, our very first president. But it was used, and I think contemplated to be used over the years, uh, with regard to administrative matters uh, or administrative consequences of laws. Uh, but this president uh, has used it uh, in ways... Uh, that clearly contemplate substantive problems and a, and, and a decision to substantively to disregard substantive provisions of laws that the president is signing. The real problem uh, here again is Congress. Uh, for Congress to sit back and see the president sign, you know, even while members of Congress and senators are sitting there in the audience with the photo op that they want. Uh, watching the president sign this and then saying, oh, by the way, I'm going to ignore, uh, fellas, uh, you know, some of these provisions in here because I don't like them. Uh, and then Congress just sits there and smiles. I mean, that, that truly is the real problem here. Congress uh, ought not to stand for that. And I, I would hope, you know, think John would agree with that, that if Congress truly believes in the laws that it has passed, the legislation that it has passed, and then sees the president, any president, uh, say, you know, I'm going to ignore this, basically uh, giving them the, uh, the high hat uh, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Congress really should do something about that. They haven't, and that, and that really is uh, where a lot of the blame lies for the erosion of separation of powers. It's not just the executive. It's not just this administration. It's Congress allowing this sort of thing to happen. I would say on the signing statements, I quite agree with you. There, there seem to be more of them. But a lot of them state what you would think would be, at least to me, would be a, a straightforward constitutional principle, which is if there's some part of the bill that's unconstitutional, then the president's not going to enforce it. Um, and so a lot of these signing statements, I take it, are um, this kind of boilerplate language that's repeated. It's almost identically repeated from signing statement to signing statement that says something like that. But there is a question about why are there more of them. And I think one of the reasons is, uh, as the administrative state has expanded, you see more signing statements because one thing signing statements are doing is an effort by the president to control the, the executive branch itself. A lot of the signing statements are orders that the president is giving to agencies. Uh, the other thing is I think they also arise more when there's separation of powers fights between president and Congress. And so you expect to see them, I think, when there are laws passed in areas of overlapping executive and congressional powers, like national security. So if you see Congress passing more national security laws, as it has after 9-11, then you'll see more signing statements. Uh, the, last, the, other, the last thing I say, I quite agree with uh, Bob that there's a change in the way the branches act towards the Constitution. So 
Um, yes, the president signs bills that he says are unconstitutional, which is fairly extraordinary. I think I agree that many presidents early on thought the veto was specifically for stopping unconstitutional laws. But also remember the early 19th century, all the great, most of the great debates about constitutional questions in our country first took, used to take place in Congress, right? Like the extension of slavery to the territories or whether to have a national bank. And now you have congressmen who say things on the floor of the House and Senate that they'll vote for bills that they know have unconstitutional provisions in them and they hope the Supreme Court will take care of them, right? Is there something that congressmen never would do in the early 19th century? So that's the other thing that's changed also is that you have Congress putting out a lot more legislation than it used to in huge omnibus bills where significant portions or important provisions are unconstitutional, but they're often attached to spending bills which the government needs to keep functioning. And so the president signs them because he wants the government to keep running. And then the signing statement is a way of, in a way, having a veto when you have a, a world of omnibus laws. Yes, sir. to see why he would not want to do that. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, if, Congress, if Congress passes a law that, on its face, takes away an enumerated power of the president, for example, the power to negotiate and submit a treaty to the Congress, Congress passes a law and says, you, know, you can't do that, or you can't, uh, takes away uh, his, his power to name ambassadors or, or what. In other words, an enumerated power uh, it would be on its face uh, unconstitutional. Uh, and I suspect that pretty much any federal court uh, to which that issue would be presented would, would so find in the, in the president's favor. Uh, the issue of commander-in-chief uh, is, is somewhat grayer. It depends on what one means by the commander-in-chief. Was that uh, more an, a grant or a recognition of administrative authority, uh, that there has to be in the military a chain of command, uh, and you have to have one person uh, you know, in that, uh, at the top of that chain of command as opposed to however many there, there were in the Congress at the time or the 535 that there are today. Uh, so that would be a grayer area, but if Congress, uh, Congress couldn't pass you know, legislation uh, that's, that, that says uh, the president is no longer the commander-in-chief. Now, if they did it through a constitutional amendment, you know, that would be an appropriate mechanism to do it. I think the political system, which by and large does work, as John has correctly indicated, would not stand idly by and allow that sort of thing to happen. But if Congress amends the Constitution to take away a president's power, certainly that is, that is appropriate. Uh, 
by the requisite uh, uh, supermajorities uh, and adoption by the states. I don't think we'd ever see that happening with regard to the commander-in-chief power. Uh, if Congress does something less than that that has the effect of taking away certain interpretive parts of the uh, commander-in-chief power, yes, I think the president, uh, uh, if for some reason he didn't veto it, or if he did and Congress overrode the veto and he still believed it to be an unconstitutional limitation on how he viewed his role as commander-in-chief, the appropriate uh, uh, remedy would be to go to court. I do believe in that, that that is uh, the proper role of our courts as, uh, as set out in you know, a whole line of cases from Marbury v. Madison. So I, I think uh, I, I would disagree with that in the sense that um, you were sort of importing this notion of judicial supremacy into the constitutional system, that if there's cases of constitutional doubt or you want to know the powers of, you know, or rights in the Constitution are, you have to go to court to get the decision. And I don't think that's consistent with the original understanding of the Constitution where uh, each branch of the government has its powers. And they all have to interpret the Constitution and carrying those powers out. Judicial review is just the courts interpreting the Constitution while they decide cases or controversies. It's not special to the judicial branch. It's just that's how it exercises that function. Congress should do that when they pass bills, and the executive branch has to do that. It has to interpret the law whenever it enforces the law. And the Constitution is the highest form of law. So I just want to correct also that I'm not saying the president can disregard any law, take them as advisory. It's only laws that violate the Constitution that raise this special problem. Second thing I'd say is actually your, your hypothetical is not really hypothetical because this happened during the Reconstruction. So uh, the Congress passed a law because they hated Andrew Johnson, right? They passed a law saying that Ulysses S. Grant was the only person in the executive branch who could give orders to military commanders, and anybody, any general that Andrew Johnson wanted to fire had to be the firing had to be confirmed by Ulysses S. Grant. So effectively made Ulysses S. Grant the commander in chief, not the president. And the president refused to obey that statute. The Reconstruction Congress also found that uh, passed a law saying that President Johnson couldn't fire any members of the cabinet unless the Senate concurred also. And so Johnson refused to follow them. He was impeached for that. That's what he was impeached for, was refusing to follow those laws. And he was acquitted by one vote. You know, President Kennedy made famous in Profiles and Courage. But even Johnson, who was the, one of our worst presidents, one of our weakest presidents, still he fought on that constitutional principle that Congress could not, in fact, uh, do that. The last thing I'll just say is other presidents have thought that they did not have to enforce unconstitutional laws. So one of the best examples is Thomas Jefferson, who thought that the alien sedition laws, un which had made it a crime to criticize the government during the French, um, during the quasi-war France, was unconstitutional. And when he became president, he pardoned everybody in the jails who'd been convicted, and he refused to carry out. He said, we're not going to prosecute anyone under the Alien Sedition Acts, as his authority as the head prosecutor of the country. So I, think there's, there's, I think there are more examples of this where presidents do refuse to carry out laws they think are uh, unconstitutional, um, and they don't have to wait on the courts. Uh, sir. I'm openly libertarian in Bob's camp in a sense, although I admit to being a kind of closet Uist. And, uh, <laughs> uh, That's uh, the best kind. Yeah, and, and, but, but my question, Bob, in a sense, and, and, and obviously this, this is, it dwells on John's kind of purposive Fourth Amendment analysis rather than the distinction that is made in these, these FISA cases that one uh, person is in a foreign country. I mean, in John's examination of statutes that pass the Fourth Amendment because of their purpose, 
rather than the location of the people, I think suggest that maybe those of us who are concerned that the public is not concerned enough actually need the situation to get worse rather than better in the sense that uh, as long as everybody thinks we're only going to be surveilled if it's a call outside the country or maybe, you know, to, to profile, we're probably speaking with somebody in a Middle Eastern country, I think that the, the level of concern over that type of surveillance program is going to be minimal. On the other hand, if you look to Roosevelt's uh, action to find Nazi saboteurs, which saw no uh, foreign nexus, that to me at least implicates these uh, our freedoms and our privacy in such a way that, that you might actually gain more adherence to your side. Is it your, you know, so do you dwell upon that distinction uh, between foreign uh, citizens being involved in these uh, in this surveillance? You're you're actually not even a closet Uist. Uh, if uh, if if you if you if you have if you uh, are critical of uh, the Roosevelt uh, program, John supported that. Uh, even as John outlined it, and and his analysis uh, certainly uh, is correct in terms of the, the 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 way the courts properly look at the Fourth Amendment. I think it's important to keep in mind that there are two parts to it. It's two pronged. You look not only at the purpose of the government action. Uh, but also reasonableness. And uh, while the administration constantly comes back to its characterization of the terrorist surveillance program as based on the notion that, well, if somebody in this country is on the phone with somebody with an al-Qaeda member, we certainly, uh, you certainly expect the government to listen in, don't you? Well, that's not the point. The point is that what the terrorist surveillance program was and what the law now is, thanks to Congress allowing itself to be uh, browbeaten by the uh, by uh, the president uh, uh, just a few months ago, is such that the government can listen into any electronic communication by anybody in this country simply because the government believes that they're making that call or that electronic communication to somebody outside the country. That is not reasonably related, even if you buy into the notion that the government, uh, without a warrant, should be able to, uh, which they should, listen into conversations with known or suspected uh, terrorists. I mean, that was that that is the purpose of, of FISA uh, and the mechanism. But to go from that, which is which is reasonable, to what Congress passed uh, in uh, uh, just a few months ago. Uh, that opens up, you know, the whole universe of any international communication by a U.S. person or anybody else in this country simply because they're calling somebody or emailing somebody overseas, I don't think is at all even remotely reasonable to the purpose, uh, even if it meets the purpose test. Let me say also in judging the reasonableness of it, this is something uh, every president between Franklin Roosevelt and Jimmy Carter did warrantless national security surveillance of international communications going into and out of the country. Um, the FISA statute came about in the post-Watergate reforms to try to control that because Nixon had tried to use that power to get it as domestic political enemies. But in the course of those decisions, uh, the courts had acknowledged that, these, that the executive branch had this authority. So um, the Supreme Court has never decided the question. In fact, it has uh, said that if it was, say, a domestic group like the Weathermen in the 60s, that you need to get a warrant if that's the people you're worried about. But it specifically said it was a national security search to protect against a foreign threat 
the Supreme Court said we're not we're not going to address whether warrants are required. But every court of appeals that has reached the question has found that the executive branch does have this power. Uh, uh, most recently, the FISA appeals court itself, when it was reviewing the constitutionality of the Patriot Act. So, yes, the question is reasonableness, but. You know, Bob would prefer that the courts get involved. The courts have already said that this power is, you know, can be reasonably exercised. It's not flatly unconstitutional. Sir. Where the Congress passes a law and the president doesn't have to comply, or the mm-hmm. well, I think that the Constitution says that the president has to faithfully execute the laws, and so I think generally that means the president has to carry out every law that's passed. However, I don't think laws is limited in that constitutional provision to just statutes that the Constitution is also part of the law. So when I argue that the president can decline to execute some kinds of laws, there's only laws where there's a conflict between the law and the Constitution itself. Other than that, he has a general obligation under the Constitution to carry out every law, whether he agrees with it or not. Now, uh, the only area where there's uh, some flexibility for the executive branch is prosecutorial discretion because it's impossible for the executive branch to carry out every prosecute everyone who violates every federal criminal law, so we you know we recognize that the executive branch has the right to set priorities in law enforcement, and part, that's part of the reasons we elect the executive president in the first place. So, I'd like to pick up on the point that you made before about the Alien Sedition Act. Um, my reading of history is that in times of war and crisis. Uh, government power has generally increased, and power of the executive has generally increased. Uh, but that it has always tended to recede once the war of the crisis passes. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that the dealing and sufficient prosecution that arrests didn't survive the John Adams administration. Uh, the, uh, the suspension of habeas corpus under Lincoln was ended before mm-hmm. uh, before the Lincoln presidency ended. We look back now on the internment of uh, Japanese Americans under FDR as uh, one of the great scandals and uh, you know disgraces in, in American civil liberties. And in every one of those circumstances, it seems to me, not only has the power asserted by the government or by the president uh, receded, but very often Americans generally have been left with even more civil liberties afterward than they generally had beforehand. So I guess my question is why why this war, the war on, on, on radical Islam or on or war on terrorism, uh, won't prove to follow the same historical pattern uh, that this you know, ever-shifting balance between security and, and civil liberty has followed in the past? Part of, part of the problem, I think, is the way the administration itself uh, defines uh, the so-called war, which, of course, is not a declared war. Uh, and John's use of the uh, use of uh, Force Act, which Congress passed uh, in a few days right after 9/11, uh, I, I dare say is 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 you know, much broader than uh, contemplated by the Congress. There was no discussion or implication that simply because Congress uh, 
believed it necessary to pass a resolution authorizing the president to utilize force to uh, you know, bring to justice uh, those uh, responsible for the attacks meant to authorize the president to conduct warrantless surveillance of Americans in this country. I mean, that was never contemplated by the Congress. the way this administration has taken it unto itself to say, we are at war, we don't want a declaration of war, but we're at war, and we define the battlefield as every inch of territory on the planet, because we never know where the, uh, the terrorists might strike next or be planning to strike. Uh, and there's really no end. This problem is going to be with us uh, for as long as we can see down the road. That, I think, even if one accepts the premise that it's okay for a president to act in violation of the laws during declared war, uh, which I don't accept, but even if one accepts that it's okay for a president just to ignore laws because uh, there is uh, a declared war, uh, Congress, if Congress wants a president to have expanded powers in war, they can do what they did in the FISA Act, and that is expand the powers if there is a declared war, for example. Uh, but uh, I think it's, 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 it's a much different paradigm now, which makes it much more worrisome because we're facing a situation uh, where there's neither a geographic nor a temporal end in sight to the conflict as the administration defines it. Therefore, it's a subsuming for itself perpetual powers. I would just add that that's not the executive branch alone. If you read the authorization to use military force, which is passed on September 18th, Bob's quite right. It's not a declaration of war, or it's not styled one, but we haven't declared war since 1945. Instead, Congress usually passes these authorizations. That authorization is not limited to geography or time either. It's the broadest uh, authorization to use force I think Congress has ever passed. It says that the government can use force against anyone connected to those responsible for the 9-11 attacks, no matter where they are, and it sets no time limit or geographic region. It doesn't even mention Afghanistan, mind you, in the authorization. It just says anyone who helped or shields or was involved in the 9-11 attacks uh, is a target that the government can use force against. So it's also Congress that has said that this war is not geographically limited to a region like Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War and has no... Um, you know, there's no uh, triggering sunset for the end of the authorization. I think, unfortunately, those are not things the executive branch created. Those are the circumstances of the type of conflict that al-Qaeda thrust on us. The 9-11 attacks were carried out wholly on our soil. They started on our soil and they landed on our soil. It wasn't that um, the executive branch decided, let's say the war is geographically unbounded. I think the 9-11 attacks showed that they were geographically unbounded. I think... uh, you know, it would be strange or foolish to try to set a time limit on the use of force at the beginning, too, right? If Congress wants the war to wind down, or if it wants the war in Iraq to wind down, it can start cutting back funds for the war if they think the war on terrorism has gone too far and ought to be, st- ought to be ended. Uh, before you ask your question, I am going to duck out, uh, and I'm going to ask Greg to relieve me. I have a class, but go right ahead, sir. Thank you. That's great. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Who should give me? Very <laughs> moderate.
practice let's assume mm-hmm. that Congress defunded either the use of uh, intercepts of the communication globally or for that matter defund the troops in, 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 in Iraq. Yeah. Uh, how does that translate into policy? That, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I, so, uh, first of all, it has happened in the past. So the Vietnam War, if you remember, is brought to a conclusion by uh, Congress starting to cut off funds and eventually it com- enacts a complete ban on any use of American money for the military in Southeast Asia. So I don't know if you remember. So that, and then there have been other examples like uh, um, Congress reduced funds for President Polk's war in the Mexican-American War uh, in order because they thought that President Polk wanted to take over all of Mexico, which I think would have been a very bad idea, but uh, Congress reduced funds for that. Congress has also used its funding powers to try to draw down our intervention in, ba- in Lebanon in the early 80s with President... So I'm just saying it has happened. Ha- oh, go ahead. Although in those instances, the President exceeds no, I think in all those cases, the executive branch obeyed the funding cutoff, which suggests to me that it's a, a very powerful cutoff. Um, so I think uh, how it happens as a matter of policy is uh, how it happens all the time with the domestic affairs and the administrative state. Congress um, is constantly using its funding power to expand programs it likes or to cut off very discrete things that it doesn't like, even when it's already authorized the programs in some other statute. And in the course of the... Congress has full ability to debate the merits, the policies. So a good example, I think, is the Kosovo War, um, which was, if you think about it, not very expensive. I mean, it was a, only an air war. There were no ground troops involved. It went on for about 80 days. And even that war was so expensive that President Clinton had to go to Congress to get new funds at the beginning. And if you look at the debates, and Congressman Barr took part in those debates, if you look at those debates, the members of Congress weren't really debating about how much money to give. They were really debating whether we should have a war in Kosovo at all and eventually decided to. So I think that, that the pivot of funding, the decision that occurs always, it does occur because of war, modern war being so expensive, ex ante, before the wars can really get going, it does give the Congress a chance to debate the merits of the policy and decide whether to support it or not. So, I, I mean, as a someone, you, you were a congressman, I think, I think it's fair to say that this is a tool that congressmen are very familiar with, they use all the time in domestic affairs, and have used, not as frequently, but have been able to use in national security as well. Any other questions? Well said. <laughs> Just a technical question on FISA. Going through the FISA process, getting the warrant or whatever, that allows that information to be used in a criminal prosecution. So if your goal is intelligence gathering, no real intent to bring a prosecution, what, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the disincentive not to avoid going through the process? Well, it, uh, it, it's, it's a continuing problem. Uh, the way the law now reads, uh, for all intents and purposes, so long as the government says the primary purpose of uh, the, uh, or a substantial purpose, I believe, uh, of the foreign intelligence surveillance uh, is to gather foreign intelligence, uh, then it's okay to use it for whatever purpose. I mean, it, it's, it's a problem. Uh, whether or not uh, any uh, administrations have violated it is an issue that the that the court 
deals with, you know, in secret. It's not an open proceeding, so we don't, uh, uh, you know, have a, have a record as we do in others. But uh, clearly, it's a, it's it's a it's a problem, and it, it's one that I think ought to require uh, much more involvement by the Congress in looking at the legislate and looking at the law, how it's been used, demanding uh, more answers than it's been getting, uh, and uh, tightening it rather than uh, than loosening it. It's not that they're going to bring a criminal case against somebody. It's that they're going to try to destroy your life. Well, it's 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 simply, you know, as Jeremy Bentham uh, back in the the 18th century uh, recognized that if you have a population in the panopticon that he that he uh, envisioned, uh, the prison system, where uh, that population is aware of the fact that they may be under surveillance. Whether or not they are at any particular time is not the point. They behave differently. It affects behavior. Do we want, this is the, the concern that I have, uh, do we want to live in a society where we know that any time we pick up the phone and call somebody overseas or email somebody overseas, a friend, a relative, a business uh, person, whatever, the government may be, uh, surveilling that they may be listening into it. They have the right to now under uh, under the under federal law. Uh, that affects behavior. That is a that has a chilling effect. Uh, certainly, if you're aware of it, now a lot of people aren't. They're not as aware as we are of these things. Uh, that's the to me the fundamental problem. Is what kind of society do we want to live in? Uh, secondly, uh, you do have the possibility that. Uh, the government is gathering intelligence under the under the uh, subterfuge, uh, under the the stated purpose of foreign intelligence, uh, and then they 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 use it. They can use it in a in a prosecution. Uh, they can use it to develop a database. You know, there there's there's a, n- a number of problems. Which here again, whatever standard we use, it ought to be one that is very carefully considered. And I approach this as a federalist. Uh, from the, the perspective that it ought to be as limited and as narrowly crafted, not as broadly uh, crafted as possible. I, was, I take your point. I think you're quite right. If you, the only way you can get this kind of evidence into a criminal prosecution is through FISA. And that, to me, is actually one way that the other branches can check this authority, is that the courts can just refuse to allow any evidence gathered from this terror surveillance program into court in a criminal prosecution. That they say if, you, if the purpose of it is really to protect against another attack, then you use it for that purpose. But you're not going to. No other branch is going to cooperate with you on that. So that's. Uh, you, that's could, a, you could write it into, into the in, into the law. Uh, uh, courts can do it. Yeah. The second thing I'd say is I think it's a reasonable. There's a question of a trade-off. So you could say yes. Um, suppose you lose the expectation of privacy in your international communications. Right. That's only one part of the balance of the reasonableness analysis. I mean, the other side is. Would you be willing to trade some of that loss of privacy off in order to have the government have a better ability to protect you against terrorist attacks? I don't. I think we all have our own personal opinions about that. I, I think from the polls I've seen, most people seem to think, or at least the majority seem to think, I would be willing to lose some of that privacy. Third thing is, this is not a legal point, but more of a sort of just, a, it strikes me as politically odd, is uh, as Americans, we're much more willing to suffer data mining, collection of all this information by credit card companies and banks, but not the government. The credit card companies and banks have far more information about you coordinated together 
to try to track your spending and travel patterns far more than the government is allowed to get. And it's a flip in Europe. In Europe, they place all kinds of restrictions on corporations. They don't place much restrictions on government doing data mining and such. So that's the other thing I'd ask you is, does it seem strange to you that uh, we have all these restrictions, I think, on what you say could be possible? You know, collection of mass databases, trying to figure a profile of you based on your activities, banks and so on. Yet we allow companies to do it all the time in the United States, and we don't seem to have as much problem with it. Oh, one of the reasons is that uh, a company can't put you in jail based on what they uh, what they gather. They can or ruin your credit rating, though. They, 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 <laughs> they can, which is why people ought to be much more aware of and concerned about what information is being gathered and what they're allowing uh, companies to, to gather on them. Uh, but I think it's also it also points out that. Uh, we need as a, as a society and certainly demand of our government that uh, they take a much closer look at basically the three categories. I think there are essentially three categories of information. One is information gathered by private companies and building firewalls to ensure that it is retained in the private sector and not in the government sector unless they meet Fourth Amendment burdens, for example. Uh, second is uh, the law enforcement uh, information that, got, that the government legitimately within the, uh, the Fourth Amendment, for example, can gather, and then military. Uh, you know, the military can gather all sorts of stuff overseas and, and conduct all sorts of surveillance in foreign theaters of operations as it needs and ought to be able to do. Uh, but uh, we need to, I think, consciously make sure that, uh, you know, we don't sort of blend these three together. They're very, very different. Uh, and we're, you know, we're allowing through our inaction, I think, uh, a, a, a blurring of, of the lines uh, that, that's going to erase a lot of the protections that we, really, uh, that we really ought to have and that people think they have. Can I make one more point I thought of in response to your question? Is that it's, and this also goes to your question about wars in the past emergencies. We're accustomed to think of uh, having an emergency. Government goes too far. Civil liberties suffer they bounce back after war is over. But it's also possible to have civil liberties protected too much, security not protected sufficiently, and that can also be in some ways just as harmful as the flip side. And so one example I would give you of this is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which had a provision which was read to prohibit before 9-11 our intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies from sharing electronic surveillance information to the point where, according to the 9-11 Commission report, uh, the CIA and the NSA knew that there were two 9-11 hijackers in the country in the weeks before 9-11. They even had their pictures, and they read FISA as prohibiting them from sharing that with the FBI to try to find them inside the country. So I think that you can also have go over too far in worrying about civil liberties concerns in a way that actually can be quite detrimental to national security. They, they did that, but they, they, they misinterpreted. The law did not prohibit them from doing that. There, that was a bad policy decision within the executive branch. Uh, I mean, you're absolutely, you're absolutely correct, but I don't think we need to do what's been done with regard to the Protect America Act to correct that problem. That, that, that should have been corrected by uh, administrative action, by some firings and so forth within the executive branch. Hopefully not me. <laughs> no. Question, um, Congressman, you talk about the, your view that the surveilling of, of all foreign communications is overbroad. And, and I have a question to kind of respond to that. And you mentioned that the man in the street 
care. Yeah. Yeah, good question. <laughs> Although, you know, what William F. Buckley said, right, he'd rather be governed by the first 200 names in the Boston phone book than Harvard University faculty, which is probably a good standard. Um, having gone there. <laughs> um, I, guess, <laughs> I guess what I would say is, um, so the way it is now is that any communications that don't involve an American citizen or permanent resident alien and don't take place in the U.S., so all those billions of communications abroad are surveilled by the NSA, you know, using sort of very broad powers of interception of supercomputers. And so that, to that extent, I don't think anyone really in the political system thinks that's going too far. Um, they don't have Fourth Amendment rights. You know, for, uh, foreign citizens don't have Fourth Amendment rights. And so this is something that we've done since World War II in cooperation with Great Britain and New Zealand, Australia, and Canada. So uh, the first thing I just say is I don't think that's overbroad, and I don't think anyone really argues that it is. So uh, I guess the second question is this this limited thing overbroad. I would say uh, it, I think it's a necessary response to changes in communication technology. So one thing we didn't even address is why would the executive branch even do this, right, this NSA wiretapping thing? Seems like to be too much. Well, one thing is that in order to get a FISA warrant, you have to have an individual target. You have to have an individual person that you have some amount of information on to, that you've identified as a potential terrorist to get a wiretap through and warrant through the FISA court system. The problem with that is that it doesn't allow you to surveil communication channels where you think there might be a high probability of terrorist communication, but you don't have any individual name, phone number, and email address. So one hypothetical would be after 9-11, if we're worried about al-Qaeda communicating with other operatives inside the country, the one conduit I think we would want to surveil would be any phone calls and emails coming from Afghanistan to the United States. Now, under FISA, you can't do that. You can't intercept every call and every email in that channel of communication. You can only do it with an individual person. So that's one thing I think is not overbroad. I think it makes sense, but it doesn't fit within the warrant system. The other thing that we've learned publicly in the last few months in this Protect America Act is that because of the way the Internet works, um, any communication between two foreign persons outside the U.S. might be rooted through the United States because of the Internet and the way emails work. So I think you have to be able to have this ability to, so even though it seems overbroad, I think that's the only way that our intelligence agencies can really get at those communications. So, uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Yeah. 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 The other thing I would say is it's very unlikely that there's someone actually listen. We don't have enough people <laughs> to listen to all these communications. I think what they're doing is they're using computers to try to search through data and see. And I will say that if you look at the um, description of the English, the, the terrorist attacks that almost occurred in England a few years ago where they were going to bomb 12 transatlantic jet flight, you know, uh, airline flights simultaneously. If you look at how that happened, they, the government, our government and the British government clearly used data mining. They identified one person, and then with a very quick amount of time, they figured out where all the networks were, uh, all the people in that network were. And they clearly used data mining, phone calls, email traffic, credit cards, and so on, to identify those people. 
more generic, but I call it my kind of like uh, American beauty question, which is on that subject of our kind of commercial privacy or the possible interaction of commercial information with governmental prosecutions. Uh, you know, the American beauty story is the one in which the, the killer was found by going to flower stores and finding out who had bought that particular kind of flower. And I mean, as a practical matter, you know, it makes me sit back and realize to an extent that we never thought in Gumshoe America that if we were to buy a yellow rose, that that was necessarily a protected uh, transaction that we had. Well, it was a commercial transaction, and most people wouldn't know it. If the police came into the florist and said, did anybody buy a yellow rose, the florist didn't think that they were going to be sued or possibly found in violation of the Fourth Amendment if they said, oh yeah, we had somebody who bought a yellow rose. It often freely disclosed it to help the police. So what I wonder is, in a, again, you know, in our concern about uh, privacy uh, and, and real uh, things that have happened, are we almost imagining more rights than we've been used to having? I do think that that was a, a legitimate point that... Uh, let me just make one point about the data mining issue. Um, one is that it already is used by the government in ways that I think most people are comfortable with. So all the uh, analysis of passenger traffic on airlines, right? If you buy a one-way ticket by cash, uh, you're, going to get, you're going to get some extra scrutiny because computer programs are identifying you. If, uh, you know, if, I, I wish I had this problem, but if you move $10,000 in cash around a lot, Right, you have to file a currency transaction report every time you do that with the Treasury Department, and they're you know they're funneling all that into supercomputers to see patterns of money laundering and drug tra you know drug trafficking activity. So I think the I'm just saying the government does do data mining as it is now. It doesn't seem to be highly controversial to a lot of people, and I would say also Congress, unfortunately, I think has cut off any other research into data mining by the government so that it can't. I think, further exploit any of these tools and even figure out how to do it in a way that would be consistent with, you know, social notions of privacy. I think, I think people ought to be more concerned about uh, the data mining that's going on. Uh, first of all, government can get it wrong, uh, and demonstrably they do. Uh, secondly, uh, should one's eating habits and one's buying habits provide a basis for the government to target a, a U.S. citizen in this country? I don't think so. Uh, there have been studies by experts that have uh, shown, uh, some even predating 9-11, that this notion that somehow if you gather enough data on enough law-abiding people, somehow presto, you know, some brainiac is going to be able to identify a terrorist. Uh, it just really doesn't work that way. Uh, and one, I think, really has to question why government wants all of this data on all of these people, all of us uh, out there. If there is, in fact, a reasonable basis to believe that a certain category of persons uh, poses a threat, then there are plenty of uh, powers uh, pre-9-11 and for the government to use to gather, uh, to gather data, whether it's simply going and interviewing the florist, uh, if the florist is not cooperative, uh, obtaining a, uh, a warrant. Uh, there are any number of ways that, uh, that they can do it. Yet every time there is a crisis now, uh, whether it's real or, or just imagined, uh, the administration says, oh, the tools we have are not sufficient. We need more. 
that's not a federalist uh, viewpoint. Say, oh, okay, you know, here's more, uh, just because you say you need more. Uh, and uh, you know, there have been there have been instances where people have had uh, their rights taken away as a result of erroneous information, misinformation. Brandon Mayfield, uh, the case out in uh, out in Oregon, uh, cost the government a lot of money. Uh, and has uh, thrown into question uh, an additional provision in the the government abused the power. Uh, these things ought to be of concern to us, I think, as, as Federalists, uh, and it ought not to be based on the notion that, well, simply because people are comfortable with having a lot of data out there, uh, we ought not to raise some constitutional concerns. With that, I ask you to Thank you. Thank you. And I would like to invite you all to join us for a reception in the foyer. Thank you.